This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, commies sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, in another wide-ranging news roundup, we discuss Trump and Macron's Bastille Day adventure, electrifying presidential candidates from popular culture, Pink Floyd versus Radiohead on Palestine, the dreadlocked Klansmen, the Black Bloc at G20, and ISIS's defeat in Mosul. We also manage to comment on the historiography of the French Revolution. Stay tuned, comrades. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Patrick. Uh, this is Patrick coming from, uh, you know, I'm not going to say where I'm coming from. Okay. Good idea. Uh, Lexi. This is Lexi, thin and crispy dark chocolate chip. And Donald. This is uh, Donald Parkinson, that uh, guy that everyone loves to hate. <laughs> Bo. So happy Bastille Day, comrades. Yes, happy, happy Bastille, Bastille Day. Day. Finish happy the Bastille French Revolution. They... So, like, you know, France has like, I mean, I guess it would be worse if Le Pen was day in France right now, but they have Macron, and it's interesting because like Trump was on hand for ceremonies today. And he was, you know, basically everyone's hashtag resistance sort of neoliberal darling Macron is, you know, he's pretty much acclimating to Trump like anyone else would expect him to. <laughs> um, even though, and I guess the only, the big story that like came out of this was, um, was like Trump was like ogling Macron's wife or whatever. You want to hear about that? <laughs> no, I didn't hear about that. That sounds like Trump. I mean, yeah, well, it's, I mean, and this is a, I can think limited interest, but you know, it's it's an amusing thing. It's amusing because people, it took off so, much, but it's entirely what you'd expect. So basically, he looks her up and down because, you know, she's a little older than uh, than Macron. He's like, oh, you're in, Trump goes quote, you're in such good shape, and he goes, uh, she's in such good shape, beautiful, isn't she beautiful? Like those are his exact <laughs> words. And I, f- I feel like um, people are like, oh, you know, he's such a sexist pig, which he is. But I feel like this was actually like Trump trying to be like open-minded. Well, this is cultural you know? exchange. This is Trump trying on some French mis- misogyny, you know? like Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's also him because, you know, normally like any – because Trump, I think, pre-being president, like any woman like over 35 is like, you know, a hideous – old washed up crone to him so him like you know looking at what crone's older wife oh she looks so great you know like that's him like being progressive like in his mind i think yeah yeah trump has discovered european civilization yeah but and it's interesting too because like, um macron like refused to say he wasn't gonna give like an address because his com- on bestial day because his comments on like the monarchy were too complicated for journalists to handle <laughs> yeah that's uh. 
what really worries me about this guy, like, it's it's 2017, and he can't, you know, admit that the monarchy is fucking bullshit, and, you know, that's the greatest thing about France, is, you know, that revolutionary tradition, or more so Paris, you know, the rest of France well, the, is one reactionary mass, according to some people. <laughs> well, did you hear what he said about Africa, too? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I said they were a bunch of savages or something to that effect. Well, yeah, he basically said that Africa has, quote, civilizational problems. And then he said, like, one of the main challenges facing Africa is that they still have seven or eight children per woman. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, nothing, you know, of, like, Europe, you know, pillaging and raving that continent for, you know, 400 years. Like, none of that. Well, that's just some, that's some eugenics type shit. It really yeah. is. And that's, that's like, like, you could get that in the United States from some chud who, like, sits at home and watches Maury Povich all day. And, like, that's his, that becomes, like, his view of, you know, African Americans in America. You know what I mean? Like, they just have so many goddamn kids. You know, and this, and this guy is, like, the neoliberal, like, whiz kid who's going to, fix like renew the french economy and like save the european union Ugh. well don't forget there is like a stratum of like neo-malthusian like you know new atheist types who get their ethics from rick and morty or something you know <laughs> like there are the, there are these people in the united states and you know they're very much about population control not to sound like Alex Jones, but I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Like, no, yeah, I know, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, a lot of the environmentalist movement are basically neo-Malthusians who are obsessed with population control and whatnot. Yeah, but, I think I think the kind of like I don't know nihilistic and kind of pessimistic outlook for capitalism ends up transferring on democracy because there's no democratic alternative to capitalism and therefore spurs this sort of reactionary longing for a time when a king, a wise king, could come and make it right, like on Game of Thrones. Like on fucking Game of Thrones, damn it. And then we'll just fuck. Well, that's what's ironic, because like Game of Thrones is literally about like the society falling apart. <laughs> that's something that seems to get overlooked in that... Uh... In that formulation, but yeah, yeah like he once said he wanted like a Jupiterian presidency or whatever, where he's like you know at re- removed at a distance and like this sort of like dignified figure who descends from like Mount Olympus to dispense wisdom at key moments or some shit like that. I don't know. Yeah, it's, Solon. Yeah, yeah. Moses. This dude, it, this dude is so fucking. This dude is a fucking little rat. This dude is a little fucking weaselly little rat. <laughs> oh, yeah. how I, do. I absolutely despise Macron. But like and like looking at what's interesting though is like looking at like the images of like their their processions, like it, it kinda looks like some Pinochet shit. Like the you know, the Bastille Day celebration. Like you got like, you know, people like riding around like in Jeeps and you know, there's a bunch of mounted horseback with people like dressed like it's, you know, nineteen ten or whatever. It's it's really like it's it's really strange. Part of the legacy of the French Revolution is the classic, you know, a citizen's army, you know, the arming of the people to wage the revolutionary war against monarchy. But the thing is, you know, this kind of uh, this aspect of the French Revolution gets easily co-opted to the very much just normal bourgeois militarism. And so you have, you know, when France was colonizing Algeria, they had, you know, the 
the whole French colonial empire, they often justified it in terms of spreading radical republicanism to the world and whatnot. The French Revolution, it's it's very much a very politically contested event. Different, you know, people have different interpretations of it that they use to kind of push, you know, their own politics. Like Marxists like to celebrate the Jacobins and Babu for the more, uh, in a sense, clots and the more like radical elements of it. And um, then you kind of have just normal liberals who are like, oh, it was a great revolution up until 1793 when they cut off the king's head and it should have just been a constitutional monarchy and it just went too far. And then you kind of have, uh, you know, the, the De Gaulle-style Bonapartism, which is kind of seems to be what you were describing. And then you have people like Macron who are just too afraid, I guess, to even talk about the monarchy as a bad thing. And there is kind of this historical narrative where uh, the French Revolution is the, the source of everything wrong in the world. Yeah, I mean, I guess, um, didn't Alex Jones say something to that effect recently, too, I think? Um, yes, he said that the Jacobins were a satanic organization that wanted to destroy God and family and I mean, this is classic, you know, the first conspiracy theory right. was basically a um, Jesuit priest who um, right. said that the Freemasons and Jews were behind the French Revolution. Right, because the peasants would never do something like that. Like, the people yeah, exactly. would never do something some like that. Like, they could not discover their self-interests and fight for it. That, that so, couldn't yeah. be. So, like, yeah, for the radical right, you definitely... Um, have that kind of narrative, the the classic, you know, reactionary Catholic kind of narrative where um, yeah. this was a revolt was against famously. nature, and if you revolt against nature, this is what happens. And this seeps in neoliberal historiography, actually, with people like Francois Ferret and Richard Pipes, who writes on the Russian Revolution, but really he traces the evilness of the Russian Revolution back to the Enlightenment ideals of the French Revolution and the ideas that we can kind of change humanity and change nature or whatever. I wonder if some, like, if some, to some extent, I think, I wonder if that's how you get sort of Badu's ideal, but, but like the event is like this ontological thing that like just kind of happens and then retroactively becomes, determines like the trajectory of things if that sort of evolves to an extent out of like French politics where you have like these revolutions that are like these big things whose, you know, political outcomes are not always clear, but you know, different groups either disavow or claim fidelity to. It's just a really abstract way of identifying a revolutionary event without a lot of the political baggage that you normally get on the left. And there's a kind of, I don't know, Deleuzean concept of a philosopher as a friend of a concept that is coming up basically with, I don't know, as far as I can read it, is like kind of new ways of speaking. And so you get these French philosophers that'll be capitalize something like event or bloom or something. And it, it's trying to encapsulate a either a new development or just a perennial development that's like important um, in, in like a little phrase that you can deploy so everybody understands where you're getting at. Yeah. And I was another common kind of interpretation of the French Revolution is this kind of idea that we can't interpret it through class, a class understanding, that basically it's an ideological thing entirely. And 
basically, if we try to um, understand it through class categories, everything kind of collapses. And that's the revisionist school, which is also very much tied into that um, kind of neoliberal interpretation of the revolution. Well, um, let's see. Mike Duncan of the History of Rome podcast, he does a series uh, uh, called Revolutions, and he has a, a bunch of, I mean, you know, it's pretty awesome, like, you know, in terms of just popular history. Uh, but basically, yeah, that's his claim about the French Revolution is that when you actually look at it in class terms, when you zoom in um, on individual actors, people don't act like according to their class interests so much that the uh, the Marxist view of the Great French Revolution as a sort of er model of bourgeois revolution falls apart, which on the one hand, I can understand someone's point about zooming in on the details. On the other hand, I, I feel like people don't appreciate that uh, Weber has a, a kind of good way of understanding class interest as sort of probabilistic, like, and that it's not going li- to be literally determinative. And if you look at things that way, it's like not as maybe not as challenging as Duncan and other liberal historians are going to get into. Um, Donald, yeah, I know you have more to like, say about that. There's a good book called History and Revolution, Refuting, Refuting Revisionism, which uh, kind of covers this topic. Because you have the classic Marxist interpretation of the French Revolution, which is, you know, it was a bourgeois revolution. The bourgeoisie took power and overthrew the monarchy, and then instituted capitalism. And the revisionist argument is that, no, this is too simplistic. And that is true. It is a very simplistic understanding of the revolution. But at the same time, I think that uh, you can still understand this revolution in class terms. It's just you need more nuance than kind of the classic, like, I guess in a way, um, Stalinist, actually, uh, narrative that became popular in France. Well, and people don't, people and classes don't necessarily act on their class interests. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, there's not like this strict, like, one-to-one, you know, it's, there's, there's all sorts of contingencies right. of history, you know, circumstance that shapes the events that things take. But, you know, people, I, you know, I think you can still say that different sections and classes of people generally have collective interests. I mean, that's, I think that's kind of irrefutable. I don't know. Yeah. And I think yeah. people, there's a kind of a straw man of what a bourgeois revolution is where the, you know, the bourgeoisie themselves lead the revolution and create capitalism, but that's not, that's not what really happened in the French revolution. But at the same time, you know, the, uh, the, the end results of the revolution was the creation of, of state forms that were, more inimical for the uh, development of capitalism in France. And truth is, it really was the popular classes that kind of pushed this revolution forward. It was the peasants and, you know, the uh, semi-proletarianized artisans and petty bourgeois that really kind of pushed more radical elements of the revolution against the monarchy. Yeah. See, I think a theory of state forms and like a, of class states needs to be more thoroughly elaborated. Um, yeah. and Andrew Levine, one of the analytical Marxists, uh, did this in a, I don't know, I think it was a 2008 book. And it's kind of like one of the OG Marxists, like theses that the analytical Marxists have defended. I mean, there's also a uh, Pezorowski and, you know, some others that I think went the other uh, route with a sort of like 
I don't know, class collaboration kind of view of the state. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very interested in like try, seeing if this stuff checks out because I don't know. I've become more skeptical over the years, and although I kind of am skeptical two ways, like because it would be of, of a lot of interest for liberal historians to bury like the the class nature of the state when talking about the revolution so that they don't, so they, they could point to the failure of one-to-one class interests to take and then be like, see, yeah. everything is so confusing. I shoot an Arab on the beach. I smoke a cigarette because my mother died. You know, like, well, the big argument that, you know, the revisionists make is that if you look at the merchants and the actual bourgeoisie that was in France, they actually were typically more right-wing and tended to be more conservative and at most wanted a constitutional monarchy. But this makes sense because the bourgeoisie in bourgeois revolutions are, is rarely, the, rarely actually the driving force because they don't have an interest in revolution because they're afraid that the popular classes will be ignited by the revolution. And, for example, you know, the activity of the peasants and the outcome of that wasn't exactly... Um, you know, land redistribution didn't exactly help develop capitalism, but at the same time, it did help, you know, create the parliamentary forms that would eventually, you know, allow the bourgeoisie to rule, you know. The revisionists are correct that it's more complicated than the kind of traditional vulgar Marxist narrative, but at the same time, I don't think we can just throw away class categories and as understand for understanding the revolution completely, and I, I think it needs a closer look. As uh, I guess um, Zhu and Lai said, too soon to tell. Yeah, I mean, especially with the American state, you get really get a sense of like what a, a class state is. When you read the Federalists and that kind of thing, I mean, it's 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 quite explicit actually. And I don't know, like when you think about like the state of American institutions today, uh, I don't know, like thinking about who runs for president. <laughs> Yeah, the state. Yeah, I, I mean, I really, I'm really getting a kick these days out of like watching just the decadence of like the system as it starts to eat itself alive, you know. Um, and to that end, I think we should uh, return to our recurring segment: uh, Who is running for president this week? Um, can you smell it? Yeah. So uh, apparently, America can smell what the rock is cooking. Uh, a committee called Run the Rock 2020 uh, has basically filed uh, to draft the actor to run for president. Uh, it's run. The committee is run by a freelance writer in West Virginia named Kenton Tilford. A uh, Twitter account for the campaign committee describes the organization as a, quote, grassroots movement to send the people's champion to the White House in 2020. Hashtag make America rock again. Oh. Um now, apparently, the guy who, who started this committee doesn't have any actual relationship with Dwayne Johnson, but the guy just said, quote, the amazing enthusiasm and energy on the ground for which Mr. Johnson prompted me to create the organization. Uh, the, the hope is that Mr. Johnson will see how much America desires real leadership that only he can provide and jumps in the race. Um, and all this is basically because The Rock, a while ago in an interview, said that it was a real possibility that he would run for president. So, you know, the wheels are turning on that. Uh, which is the thing we talked about there. So there's an update on that. Um, there's just one question on my mind is how can you get involved with the rocks campaign? Uh, I don't actually see anything currently. I mean, I should, maybe I should check it out. Um, 
Hang on, let me see if I can look this up real quick. I don't think Mike McNair would mind if we just unconditionally endorse The Rock, right? <laughs> just on situationist grounds. I would only do it. I would only do it if he ran in character. Like you didn't oh, run right. as Dwayne Johnson. Like if he ran literally as a rock and just did all of like the kayfabe shit that he did when he's a wrestler. Specifically as the people's champion, because yeah, literally, I, yeah. I mean, if if the if we if we're stuck with this system, we might as well have a popular front of the people's champ. Yeah, well, we might as well just have. I mean, we might as well just have like a turn it into like a complete three ring circus. I mean, I think it's. I think honestly, that might be the only way we can like break liberals' brains enough to have them maybe start to consider socialism as like a possible alternative. <laughs> nah, they're just going to back Zuckerberg when he runs. Oh God. Um, I actually read, um, I mean, I, yeah, I don't want to sound like an asshole, but this filing sentence will make that inevitable. Uh, I was reading the economist today. Bazing. And yeah. And, and they're, they they every year they do this thing where they kind of like write like articles in the future or whatever. And so they were writing a future on the beginning of Trump's like second presidential term. And the way, the way this, the way this article like imagines it playing out basically is um, Elizabeth Warren gets the nomination for the Democrats and runs on a populist platform. Zuckerberg runs in the center uh, as an independent, basically doing what Michael Bloomberg threatened to do. And they basically, they basically split their vote. You know, it Paul gets real ugly. Like Zuckerberg tries to use like anti-Semitic stuff. Uh, as a way to like throw back against like id Paul people defending Warren. And then Trump just kind of sits back and goes, these people are crazy and then wins, which I mean, reading that it actually seemed like a very real scenario. Um, although I don't know, I, I don't know how much like legs like Zuckerberg will actually get once he tries to actually like talk to people, but yeah. he, I mean, he, he uh, went to Alaska to talk about um, uh, UBI universal basic income talked about how great it was that everyone in Alaska gets a check check and that sort of thing. So he could actually become somewhat popular with like universal basic income. Like I mean, everyone loves free money. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't really see who, who would buy into that, but I could be wrong. Um, but I think, you know, moving away from regular rock, I think the big star this week was kid rock uh, who announces run for us Senate. Uh, and I want to basically take this opportunity to say, dude, I called it because <laughs> if you'll recall on a past program, we discussed, uh, Ted Nugent, Sarah Palin and Kid Rock, uh, making a, a somewhat publicized visit to the white house. Uh, I basically said that this was indicative of Kid Rock and Ted Nugent's political ambitions. Uh, so sure enough, weeks yeah. later, Kid Rock 2018 for us Senate has a website up, uh, Let's see. It's got uh, a number of banners that say party to the people. Uh, welcome to the party. Uh, I'll rock the party. Uh, <laughs> you never you never met a politician quite like me. There was one. I'm, I'm waiting for it to cycle through. There was one that said something about pimping. Hang on. <laughs> pimp, pimp of the nation, I guess, is one of his. I guess he's just wow. throwing slogans out trying to see what. I mean, if, if you don't analyze what pimp means there, then that's fine, right? Yeah, but he's got merch. I mean, God, this might just be, like, a way for him to, like, you know, sell T-shirts for a while. Um, but I don't know. We'll see. Well, Jake, yeah, Jake when was you're the right. Last time, when was the last time Kid Rock even had a hit? It was, like, a while ago. It was, like, that Leonard Skinner ripoff he did. 
Oh yeah, that mashup. Yeah, that was really bad. But um, I don't know. I'm just it's 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 looking like we're going to be living in a future where only celebrities can run for you know for can run for political office now. You know, like it's almost like Trump. You know, kind of broke this barrier, and now. You know, people are, you know, celebrity politicians are going to be the next big thing, which is kind of horrifying. But it's also hilarious, you know. (laughs) Nerds and other people flee to politics for something uh, less sullied and decadent than popular culture. And now um, a a bunch of, like, musicians and reality TV stars are going to stuff all their heroes into lockers. Yes, that's what I love about it. Like you know, like the Duck Dynasty people are gonna have a bunch of people, you know, in in office and whatever wherever they live. I don't know. It's yeah. it's what I do actually love about this period, in you know, like a nihilistic kind of way, is like watching watching people's belief and faith in these institutions and these ideas that they have about like our hallowed discourse just falling apart, and watching them like hate all of the politicians and everybody now. And I'm like, yes, like welcome to my world. Yeah, like this is this is the world I live in, and now you have to live in it too. Yeah, it does make us look not as crazy, even though right? we still think a classless society is a good idea. Yes, even after the famines and the purges. Yes, even after Cambodia. Yes, even after that. So that bit of gloating is uh, out of the way. Let's just knock out like the rest of like the celebrity news, even though it seems like most news is now celebrity news. Um, yeah. So lockers. So I guess uh, Roger Waters is being accused of being an anti-Semite for being like pro BDS or whatever. Well, isn't it because he turns into Hitler in the like third side of the wall? Does he? Well, I mean, it's part of a narrative arc where, you know, his father is bombed by the Nazis during World War II, so he never gets to meet him. And then he grows and becomes like a decadent rock star. And he completes this wall of isolation that has like, you know, some political undertones. Is that Um, what that album was about? Yeah. And then and then there's this big reveal. I mean, spoiler alert. Uh there's a, a concert section where he basically becomes a fascist. And so, he, you know, basically becomes a thing that, you know, did, fucked up his own life. Is that in the movie? I never saw the movie. It's the plot of the wall. It's a, it's a really like great, like Reagan era reflection, or I guess Thatcher era reflection of like, you know, what happened to the spirit of 45 and the, the hopes for British socialism. And it's within definitely like a, the national narrative but I don't know. I have this kind of like postmodernist, like pluralist, fragmented reality, like appreciation for people that are saying socialist things, even if it's in a shitty Lasallian nationalist format. I thought it was meant to be like about like specifically about like the singer who committed suicide. That was like the lead singer for uh, Pink Floyd before. No, that, that, was, that, was, that was that was that was Wish You Were Here. That was a different yeah. album. Well, the thing is, Pink Floyd kind of always was a political band, at least from Dark Side of the Moon on. Like, Animals is basically kind of a, a class critique of English society, I guess. It's like the original Wake Up Sheeple. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, th- th- it just... has a Marxist revolution in it. The sheep rise up and institute, like, a military dictatorship. Jesus, I got to listen to those albums again. Yeah. I think... Yeah. The thing is, like, this, these accusations against Roger Waters being anti-Semite are just complete bullshit, though. 
Like I looked at, you know, the, the I saw the big headline, Roger Waters is an, his mass it turns to be massive anti-Semite. And uh, it was just basically a, a bunch of critiques of Israel and him endorsing BBS. Wow, so it, what an anti-Semite. Wow. Yeah, it's just more of the typical like Zionist, you know, tactic of attacking anyone who um, critiques Israel with, you know, the ultimate, you know, insult. Because no one wants to be an anti-Semite, obviously. It's Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, 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 it's like the standard playbook. You say anything about Israel that's less than glowing and you're an anti-Semite. You hate Jews, yeah. I mean. If you don't like dead Palestinian kids, then you're an anti-Semite. I'm sorry. Right. It's just yeah. the facts. Yeah, you ha- in order to be a Jew, you really have. It's something that really bothers me. <laughs> uh, like, And it, it takes the sting out of the word anti-Semite because you just expect criticism of Israel. And it took me a long time to distinguish, like, like actually, as as someone who's with a Jewish background, it took me like a long time to actually figure out what was anti-Semitic because I just stopped taking the word seriously after a while. And the problem is, like, the left probably does have a lot of anti actual anti-Semites in it, but it's 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 really just because the left has such low standards in a way. Like, you know, we're willing to shill for Assad and and Putin. You know, not us, but other leftist groups are. So it's really not that bad far off that the left will have anti-Semites in its ranks, you know. And we're so tolerant of crankery. Like, like Adorno calls anti-Semitism like the er form of a rational or like a rationalism. <laughs> like it's 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 one of those really telltale like red flags of intellectual brokenness. Oh, it's just so ridiculous. Like, anti-Semitism is just such a ridiculous... It's, it's just a conspiracy theory, basically. It's so ridiculous that it's like, how do you actually believe this shit? But the thing is, it is kind of what ties together all white nationalist narratives, basically, or all this kind of anti-globalist stuff. Because in the end, if you really like believe in this conspiracy that there's white genocide, then the only thing that you can really do to... The pull of this ridiculous narrative together where communism and capitalism are two sides of the same coin and white people are being replaced, you know, by, you know, the third world. And the only way you can really justify this insanity is by coming up with some crazy conspiracy theory. And everyone, you know, the Jews become, you know, the proxy, the blame, basically. I mean... I guess when you don't really understand what capitalism is, it just seems like a conspiracy, really. Like, it's just the evil bankers and the and the fucking Zuckerbergs and all that. It's just like a collection of evil, evil hook-nosed weirdos that are, that are trying to turn your kids gay and shit like that. Well, what's interesting about it is, like, the persistence of, like, that myth. Because, you know, I, I could see more its popular appeal for people who weren't that far generally, uh, generationally removed from feudalism. When it might have seemed like there was this harmonious social order before that was been destroyed by sort of these this cabal of, like, meddling outside forces or whatever. But it's like, what, what harmonious past do people, do anti-Semites today yeah. hope for us to get back to? Well, Anti-Semitism has really evolved. It went from like Jews being this weird, weird sort of closed off backwards minority that sacrificed babies and shit like that to they're controlling everything and the and the banks and everything and stuff like that. It really evolved over time. 
Well, yeah. also, well, also it, it was a lot less plausible before because Jews were like some of the most like oppressed and like embattled people like in the societies in which they lived, which nowadays like there is actually Israel and there, you know, there is like pretty white Jews. Like I'm a pretty white Jew in America. Like I, I, I never was hurt by the word kike or anything like that. Like that never stung to me. You know, there was no social reality in which that bore any consequence for me. Like, it's it's a little more plausible, like, Jewish conspiracies these days. I mean, as absurd as they are. Go on. Well, I was no. going to say is, like, I was actually no, reading... You know uh, what I mean? I was actually like, reading Lenin on anti-Semitism, and he was saying that, you know, anti-Semitism is kind of just a result of these backwards, feudalistic ideas that the masses still cling on to. And as we modernize Russia and destroy, you know, we're the remnants of the aristocracy, no one will be anti-Semitic anymore. But then, you know... What happens is, interestingly enough, a bunch of aristocratic immigrants from Russia go to Europe and set up bookstores where they um, sell books saying that the Jews were behind the Russian Revolution and, you know, they were the ones who were behind the Bolshevik Party. And they talk about how the Jewish Trotsky, you know, and his hordes of the Red Army were, you know, killing good, innocent peasant folk. And while, well, you know, protecting the, the Jews from pogroms and terrible things like that. So, so it, it's, I think modern anti-Semitism in a way is, is not so much a remnant of these kind of backwards feudal ideas as it's almost like this kind of false anti-capitalism. Yeah. You know, where people, you know, instead of looking at the real relations of production and understanding capitalism as a social relation, they try to personify it. And so... And, and they don't. And there's also the kind of the equation of um, Judaism and Bolshevism. So they want to be anti-capitalist and anti-communist. And so the way that you can kind of do that is by making the Jew a personification of capitalism. Well, of modernity, uh, the abstract yeah, modernity power itself, of yeah. modernity, because it's both capitalism and communism. It's industrialized society. It's, it's societies of of exchange of some kind. I mean, communism would require require a lot of exchange. It just wouldn't be like, I don't know, mediated exchange. Yeah, um, yeah that's kind of what I remember reading about Heidegger sort of doing in his black, in like the black books. Like he basically blames the Holocaust on sort of like the technology, the sort of technological logic of the Jews just destroying themselves. Oh my God. Fuck yeah. Heidegger. I, I really hate Heidegger. Well, we need we need to let's read that for this podcast. Should we? Yeah, because I think that needs to be popularized, and it's the reason why we should really not replace Marx with Heidegger. <laughs> yes, yeah, I think we can. I think we can all agree on that. No, seriously, like the I black like, notebooks. I, <clears throat> well, I mean. So much like postmodern or post-structuralist theory is kind of taking epistemology of Heidegger and Nietzsche, you know. Yeah, that stuff's garbage. Well, look, I love Nietzsche, and I think Heidegger has interesting things to say about ethics. But I do think that politically, it's this is a problem. (laughs) It's a problem that Marxists need to face up to because, you know, when people are looking for something that resonates with their situation, you know. Like, sometimes these old reactionary Germans have more to speak to people's situations now, which is a sad story. 
Yeah, I mean, I've been reading the reads from Carl Schmidt just because, I don't know, just to see what he actually has to say and what his theory of politics is. But, uh, I mean, I don't know. I think that a lot of his stuff, people try to completely remove it from its reactionary context. And anyway, that's, that's we're getting a far away that's from that, Roger that's, Waters here. That's, a, that's another another conversation for another day. Hey, do we want to talk about how he went after Radiohead, too? And like Radiohead yeah, got yeah. Off, got well, Radiohead played in Israel, so they kind of had the, they did the opposite thing that um, Roger Waters did. Hmm. And they yeah, got a lot also, of whack for that. So here's what, um, I guess, the reason, like, I guess uh, Tom York took umbrage about this was that um, he described it as, like, just extremely distressing that a group of international artists uh, chose to, rather than engage with us personally, throw shit at us in public. Um, and then he goes, uh, I'll be totally honest with you, this has been extremely upsetting. There's an awful lot of people who don't agree with the BDS movement, including us. I don't agree with the, the cultural ban at all along with J.K. Rowling, Noam Chomsky, and a long list of others. And he said it was particularly disturbing to be lectured by people he admired, singling out British director Ken Loach, quote, who I would never dream of telling where to work or what to do or think. Um, and then he goes on, uh, it's disrespectful to assume that we're either being misinformed or that we're so retarded that we can't make these decisions ourselves. I think it was patronizing in the extreme. It's offensive, and I just can't understand why going to play a rock show or going to lecture at a university concerns them. Well, so. I mean, back in the day when apartheid South Africa was around, Queen played there, and they got a bunch of shit for it. So, I mean, it's on one end, it is kind of ridiculous to, you know, bring politics into rock music so much. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it's just this idea that, um, I don't know. I mean, they're they're a problem. I don't. I I guess I critically support BDS. I don't think it's gonna, you know, bring down the Zionist state and bring peace to the region or anything. But yeah, there are critiques to be had of BDS. I mean, uh, but someone the critique that, someone isn't that, that it's anti-Semitic, basically. No, no, no. Like uh, Finkelstein has a critique of BDS, and he compares it to the Vietnamese Solidarity Movement, and how there's a sort of uh, managerial stratum in the BDS movement that wasn't there during the Vietnamese Solidarity Movement. That, and that's why he opposes it. But I mean, none of this is why Tom York op is opposing BDS. Like this is seems more like a rock star being determined's consciousness kind of thing. Um, well, where he, he um... wasn't a fucking rock show. And it's interesting that he, he, cites, he cites Noam Chomsky, but I kind of question whether he actually has the same critique of BDS that Noam Chomsky does. I yeah. sincerely question that. Because I don't, you know, I'm not, I kind of, you know, made fun of BDS uh, at, at various points, especially when like their first, like the first major campaign of it seemed to be against SodaStream, which until recently, right. I, I didn't know anybody who owned SodaStream or even knew what it was. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it was, like there were apparently there were some ads with Scarlett Johansson for SodaStream, but it was it, you know, or then they started going after after they after they toppled SodaStream, they went after Hummus. Oh shit, struggle Hummus. Yeah, where but I'm but I'm sitting here going like, well, you know, if you're gonna do this, like tech, like Intel, uh, I think Hewlett Packard have like huge facilities in Israel. You know, like why yeah. why wouldn't you uh, start there? Uh, I know because nobody wants to stop using their computer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so in, in that sense, that kind of makes sense why you would go for a kind of cultural boycott and basically be like, no, it's not acceptable to uh, 
play here because of the apartheid like conditions that are being well and like is 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 radiohead going there and like you know raising consciousness about the plight of the palestinians and while they're in israel i mean i know it's not their job to do that or whatever but on some level i feel like maybe it kind of is if if they claim to to rights or ascribe to the idea that you know palestinians should have you know justice and the access to you know a decent living um and not you know be killed all the time for on some stupid bullshit like if they claim to you know subscribe to those principles and then they just kind of go and have a concert and pretend like everything's fine and hunky-dory i feel like there is kind of something fucked up about that or they can't i i I think that you know because it's not like these people are like working proles who like had to who like you know like the many palestinians who go to israel to work because they need to make a fucking living like these are pretty pampered rock stars who you know, they could go anywhere they wanted, really. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing about Radiohead is that they have, they, you know, did like a no logo tour. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> they had these anti globalization movement like resonances. And so people do look to Radiohead for a kind of social critique, as absurd as it sounds. That's, yeah. that's part of their brand. Like, hail to, th- hail to the thief, man. He's really saying some shit. <laughs> I mean, you know, idiot tech uh, is is basically about climate change. Like, uh, there's you know, there's stuff in there, very vague yeah. stuff. Honestly, though, it's even like it's even it's it's not even like like Pink Floyd probably is like a better political band than Radiohead. I mean, not only in like are. real life apparently, but well, yeah, Waters even, like, Waters was a socialist of some kind. I mean, I guess I I guess you could I don't know if labor socialism counts, but you know, Waters like if you look on the anniversary like website for the wall, it reads like an ISO pamphlet. Like <laughs> That's cool. I didn't know I I listened to like a lot of Pink Floyd as like a teen like a young teenager. I didn't know any of this. Well, Marxism was sort of part of the common sense lifeblood of a lot of the post 45 European settlement the same way the new deal represented like progressivism or something represented something here. Like Marxism had a very domesticated Lasallian bourgeois state friendly version. That That was, that was like, all right, look, the European bourgeoisie like besmirched itself and, and defaced its legacy by throwing in with the fascists. And so, you know, the socialists and the communists were the true patriots. It's hard to imagine this, like, but that was that that sense was there. Oh yeah, definitely with the Popular Front there, especially. And I think that was a kind of a big part of what integrated the labor movement into the capitalist state was this kind of, you know, this, you know, that classic argument that oh, the communists and the socialists are true patriots because we defeated fascism and the bourgeoisie didn't. You know, yeah, seductive. Now, I swear to God, I promise it's a, by the end of this episode, we will get out of like celebrity territory. But I do want to talk just very briefly about uh, Junior, like Trump Junior. Um, and just two things, real quick. So, I, I was looking at like a CNN article, and it begins with this sentence. Uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s decision to take a meeting with a Russian lawyer who has alleged ties to the Kremlin may be the most baffling move by a high-level political operative in recent memory. 
Now, in a way, this sentence contains like its own answer because it describes Donald Trump Jr. as a high-level political operative um, and then says that the move was absurd. Well, no, what's absurd is that Donald Trump Jr. is a high-level political operative. <laughs> you know, and what's, what's fascinating about this whole thing is that, you know, it's just this whole thing just reeks of like blatant, uh, you know, incompetence that you would completely expect from somebody who is like, you know, you know, you know, it'd be good, good for uh, running my org. I'm just going to my son. He's a sharp kid. Like this is the same. Log- this is the same logic of like, you know, a guy who runs like a car dealership, you know, and like sends his son to get like a BA and uh, so he can come back and manage it with like his frat boyfriends, you know, like, and, but I just wanted to read real quick, and because one thing that was kind of making the rounds on Left Book was like a series of tweets by one of like these amateur detectives who has been trying to um, like crack the code and like you know find the smoking gun that will bring Trump down once and for all. This guy's name is uh, Jared Yates Sexton. He's on Twitter, and I'm just going to read these tweets uh, chronologically. <clears throat> um, I'm not entirely con- I'm not entirely convinced that I'm not having a break from reality. I tracked down sources, followed so many dead leads, labored over this, and then he just, you know, tweeted out the proof. Like I spent hours and days and weeks and months and his son just hit tweet. I worked on this story for a year and he just he tweeted it out. I chased this story for a year and he just <laughs> tweeted it out. And so I, I I love I think what you know spoke to people so much looking at this thing was like you know what I was kind of talking about earlier like watching like you know pe- liberal meltdown basically uh, and like their narrative of you know like we're gonna we're gonna bring them down the bully through uh, good old fashioned journalism and detective work and it's like no like the the smoking gun you were looking for <laughs> was just tweeted by Trump's fuckhead son <laughs> who just did this like blatantly you know obvious attempt to like get dirt on Hillary Clinton I mean it's it's uh it's hilarious like how flat like reality has become uh I mean yeah what else is there to say that hasn't already been said about Trump yeah. and Russia and I mean look yeah, I, okay apparently there's a little bit of meat here great I mean, it's it still all feels pretty thin. This isn't why the Democrats lost. Okay, so moving on. Maybe this will go somewhere. Maybe it won't. Uh, Klansman with dreadlocks astonishes Twitter. Um, so at a KKK rally in shows, have you guys seen this? Has anyone seen this? No, oh my God. Yes, I have. Okay, so a photo taken. I have. At a KKK rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, has provoked widespread disbelief online after a member was pictured with plated dreadlocks. Um, let's see. So the photo was taken by Devont Cunningham, a recent graduate from University of Virginia, and it went viral. And uh, they said, quote, me and my friend were in total disbelief. We could we really couldn't believe we'd just seen a Klansman with dreads. We were looking at the KKK here and dreadlocks are basically a symbol of African culture. It was really weird to see. Uh, and then people were just, you know, it, it, it became like a whole big thing because um, it's interesting because, you know, there's often, you know, ongoing debates about like cultural appropriation and, you know, uh, 
like, you know, should white people be allowed to wear dreadlocks? I don't know. Is there anything here or should we just cut this segment? <laughs> well, uh, one of my one of my friends actually got called a race traitor for um, having dreadlocks. He's, he's a white dude. In what context? Like, I, I don't I guess, you know, you know this is um, Florida, pretty conservative area of Florida. And um, he had dreadlocks and someone he got called the race trader for having dreadlocks because, you know, that's what black people do and what good white boy shouldn't have dreadlocks. But it's like reality has kind of flipped. And now if you have dreadlocks, that means you're a racist because it's cultural appropriation. So like it used to be an anti-racist thing to do, but now it's like a racist thing to do to have dreadlocks. And it just kind of, I don't know. I just think it's interesting kind of flip of how the whole um, cultural appropriation narrative has kind of changed things. Well, it, it seems like really strange because, yeah, I mean, of course you're saying the thing about being a race trader on the one hand. But on the other hand, this dude is a Klansman. Like, I, I don't know if he's coming at it from that perspective. Like, or if he was, it was through some kind of highly sublated you know, American attraction to cool, which is abstracted from African, you know, American culture. Like, I don't know, like maybe he got into rap because of Kid Rock, you know, like, and thought shit. Maybe, maybe his hair just naturally dreads, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to figure out, you know, what the motive is, but I don't know. I think it's kind of funny. Yeah. I, I guess it's, probably satisfying to people who are, you know, heavy into the critique of cultural appropriation because this is an actual racist, like a real unambiguous racist that is doing it as opposed to, you know, the well-meaning but potentially like confused white people who are doing it else otherwise. Potentially confused. I mean, I don't know. Like... You know, actually, he might just be a Rob Zombie fan because Rob Zombie had dreads for a while, and he probably heard some Rob Zombie. So, well, um, maybe what I'm thinking is like maybe it's just a big fuck you to the SJWs from their perspective. <laughs> it's like, hey, you you totalitarian cultural Marxists say that we can't have dreads. Well, guess what? I'm white and I have dreads. Deal with it, hippies. Like I don't know. Don't they maybe, try to? Argue? Maybe. I've heard some people argue that uh, dread the earliest recorded instances of dreadlocks was actually ancient Greece, but. I don't know. Uh, anyway, so do you want to talk about G20? G20. Because uh, I guess, you know, like the black block as like a tactic kind of originated in, was it, I think it was either Italy or Germany. It was in Germany. It was basically, um, it came out of the squatters movement, the um, the autonomous movement, basically, where you had, um, it, it people squatting buildings and kind of forming like, you know, temporary autonomy zones or whatever you want to call them and trying to create kind of like a alternative society within the society. And then they would get in street fights with the fascists who were still around. And so the black bloc kind of became like a uniform against the fascist kind of, there was it really, it, yeah. So the black bloc does originate from Germany and has a very much, you know, long history. Well, not that long. It's been since, like, the 80s, but... So, yeah, it makes a certain degree of sense, then, that, you know, it would be a pretty pretty prominently expressed at, like, a G20 protest since they decided to have it in uh, in Germany. Um, 
Did anyone have any thoughts on that? I know I don't know. I've been following the discourse on that online too much. I mean, this is my view on the black block. You could have the biggest black block in history and nothing would actually change. <laughs> because it's just it's so removed from class politics and it's so removed from politics that has like any real social base. And at this point it's just a way for you know young kids who are alienated and pissed off to to you know have some fun fighting the cops, you know. Well, yeah, wasn't the original tactic though they would basically do this not necessarily as like summit protest, but like in response to like their squats getting fucked with by the cops. So they would like yeah. go through like the posh districts in town and just like wreck wreck up windows and you know loot stores and stuff. Yeah, like in the eighties in Germany, actually did have some kind of purpose within the social movement, but at the same time the. The alcohol autonomous movement in Germany was already kind of a a rejection of class politics in favor of a more, I guess, lifestyle kind of thing. Well, it was like a reinterpretation of class politics. I don't think they really abandoned it yet. Like, aporismo flows into autonomism. And it's it's not really the abandonment of class politics as so much as it is like a disaggregation of homogenous class politics like the idea that there's you know one proletarian way of life that's centered around work i don't think it's fair to call that not class politics it's just sort of like more maybe like even lumpenization kind of romantic kind of thing yeah but there was this kind of culturalist aspect to it in germany like i remember reading that um they would try to shut down pornographic movies from being shown in theaters like, I don't know if you know who Lydia Lunch is, but she was kind oh, of, like, yeah. she was, a you know, a figure in the no-wave scene in New York and kind of a counterculture figure, and she made a pornographic film. They were screening it in Germany, and the Black Block went and shut it down. Oh, my God. Yeah, and so, and they would also, like, I don't know, attack drug dealers and stuff. So it was kind of a a weird movement and a lot of it crossed over with kind of crazy anti-imperialist Maoism and stuff. Well, yeah, that's what I was thinking. It sounds very Maoist inspired and it's part of the new left. So that makes sense. But, um, I saw a thread in the, um, red card holders, Facebook group for the IWW. Basically someone was saying that a lot of these black block people in Germany were actually like attacking working class neighborhoods in Germany. And I don't know how much truth there is to that. But um, recently, yeah, so I guess that's like one of the criticisms that's been leveled by the left against the black bloc is that they actually were they weren't actually attacking any institutions, they were just burning shit for the hell of it, and it kind of just became this nice kind of just devolved into this nihilistic like riot for the sake of rioting thing. When you break like a Starbucks window, I mean, who do you really expect to clean it up? It's just like, like people have to sweep up the class and that sort of thing. I mean, no, it doesn't really bother the capitalist class so much as as it does just working class people. Yeah, I mean, there's never the um, accompanying looting that you really need to actually, you know, hit them at all. You know, they just break the windows and run away. I don't know, like some of the some of the smashy smashy around Oakland has some looting like back during the Occupy days or, you know, on the tails of some of the Black Lives Matter stuff. 
Oh, like, okay. oh yeah, there's definitely looting, but even then, it's just redistributing private property, basically. I mean, I'm all for looting the hell out of the the bourgeoisie, and you know, you know, I'm not I'm not morally against any of this stuff. I just think that that's important as a, as a tactic. It's really kind of going nowhere, but the left yeah. is really stuck on it. I think, and there's this kind of very hardline anarchist position where. You have to defend the black bloc no matter what. And this is, you know, our movement. And, you know, this is the vanguard, you know, is the black bloc. And I think it's, I don't know. I think it does more harm than good because you're not actually building social cohesion. You're just basically masking up and rioting. You're not building any real institutions out of it. And I guess at least in, you know, the original German black bloc, they would, like, form squats and stuff. But even then, it was more of, like, a drop-out-of-society type thing. Yeah, it's definitely a ritualistic tactic more than it is part of any strategy. As far as this whole G20 thing, I don't think it really had an effect on how G20 went. I think it just made for some headlines and a lot of... uh, Pretty, Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, and I think it was the largest black block in history or something like that. But like oh, I said, like, you, you have the largest black block in history, and honestly, nothing gets accomplished. So yeah, I think pretty, this kind of signals much. the dead end of black block in a way. It's the, no, it's it's the anti-war movement of black blocks. It needs to be bigger. Anti- it needs to get bigger. Movement. The answer coalition of black blocks. So I guess Iraq's prime minister, uh, Haidir al Abadi uh, visited Mosul to mark its liberation from Islamic State, uh, but there are a few small pockets of IS resistance within Iraq's second city. Do you have any thoughts on this, or? Well, it's looking like ISIS is pretty much in its death throes right now, which is, you know, on one end, nice because ISIS is a horrible reactionary movement, and that, you know, less people are probably going to suffer because of this. But at the same time, I think as ISIS gets destroyed territorially, all their underground cells are going to start going haywire and committing terrorist attacks as kind of like a revenge. And that's going to be pretty uh, scary. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there is going to continue to be this kind of anti-imperialist or, you know, anti-Western or whatever impulse you know, within the Muslim world. So even if IS falls, I mean, you're still going to have other groups or grouplets or whatever, you know, trying to basically carry on this sort of ongoing jihad or whatever. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I wonder, you know, because it took took a while for Arab nationalism to sort of be discredited before, like, Islamic fundamentalism sort of came on the rise as, like, the way to resist the West – um, if I wonder if we're approach if we're potentially approaching a point where that breaks, and if it did, what would take its place? Communism. <laughs> that would be I mean, my hope. Well, I mean, probably more more Islamism. I don't know. <laughs> like the uh, the Ira- Iranian Revolution and like the kind of like Wahhabi export from Saudi Arabia continue to define like global resistance. Yeah, unfortunately, and I think like the Mujahideen yeah. in Afghanistan against the USSR was also kind of a breaking point. And it's important to point out that the United States did promote this shit. 
when it was useful yeah. for the United States. Yeah. yeah, they they literally called like monarchists like the moderates, and then like the sort of the nationalists or the socialists were like the extremists or whatever. Uh, that was like the that was like the uh, terminology prior to uh, prior to nine eleven or during the Cold War at least uh, in terms of like American planners. So yeah, I mean, per, I guess my position is that, that the Middle East needs an anti-clerical revolution of some kind. You know, there's going to have to be some there's going to have to be some kind of revolution from below against these theocrats who present a false form of anti-imperialism because let's just face it like this isn't even this is hardly like the even the kind of nat lib style anti-imperialism that you had in the cold in the cold war you know it's really just kind of this nihilistic uh, death drive type um type of i don't know just meaningless violence i guess with quranic references to justify it there's really nothing potentially progressive about it it's it's purely a regressive reactionary movement yeah it's even reactionary compared to hezbollah and that sort of thing that's like isis is just pure nihilism it's barely even religious at this point yeah, and that's, I mean, what's depressing, too, is I've read estimates, like, it's going to, like, they've got villages and, like, so mined up, it's going to take them, like, 30 years to clear out all the mines. So, I mean, they're going to leave an imprint on this thing long after they're gone, fortunately. Um, okay, here's some more doom for you. Uh, satellite images showed that a huge iceberg had split from the Larsen Sea Shelf in Antarctica. The 5,800 square kilometer chunk of ice, about five times the size of Hong Kong, is one of the biggest ever recorded. Such calving of ice shelves occurs naturally and is not necessarily directly linked to rising global surface temperatures related to climate change. There are fears, however, that the shelf could in the future share the fate of its neighbor, Larson B, which disintegrated entirely within a few weeks in 2002. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously it's, I mean, you can't really trigger a one-to-one relationship on anything with regards to climate change, but it's you know, it's it's pretty much climate change. <laughs> yeah. So it's another week, weekly reminder that uh, the clock on any kind of uh, potential uh, revolution or solidarity or anything is uh, it's ticking. And I think you know what a lot of people call you know the refugee crisis, you know, where you have massive amounts of people being dislocated from where they live. This is just like the beginning of what's going to be a way larger movement of people throughout the world because of climate change. And yeah, that, when mass when massive sections of the earth don't have arable land, good luck. Yeah. Good luck keeping people. Like that's that's the thing. Like when you hear like far right wing groups talk about like, you know, like oh we need a fifty year moratorium on immigration. It's like yeah, good luck. Good yeah, luck. It's. And when I can see, like, the far right kind of cashing in on this, though, and, you know, the response to climate change could just be, like, basically some kind of eco-fascism or whatever, where um, I mean, we, honestly, we just need the lot- people to die and we try to preserve the white race, you know, and that's the reaction that people have to, in response to this mass movement of immigrants and whatnot. I mean, the, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's, what's, that's the scariest of, thing. Like, that's yeah. the scariest thing because, you know, it's it's one thing 
I mean, it's 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 reactionary enough when people are like, we got to build a wall to keep people out. When the reason that people are moving here are like economic and pretty much entirely socially constructed, when like literally like areas of the earth become uninhabitable and like people have nowhere to go, you know what I mean? Like that's going to that's going to trigger you know. I mean, you're basically it, the, keeping people out is basically like literally going to literally be genocide. Yeah, and there already is a populist you know mass movement against immigration at the level it's at. And when it really starts getting to a higher level, it's going to be ugly. And I think that's really when a lot of uh, when the when the left is going to start having to make its case more strongly that it's it's either socialism or barbarism, and we either learn to live together and figure out that we have more in common than different, or we just end up you know genociding huge populations of the world. Well, that's the thing. Like, and there would if if there was like open movement of borders, you know, there would be a decrease in the standard of living, like in the core countries. I mean, there just would be, you know, because the, the amount of people immigrating here would be beyond the infrastructural capacity to maintain like the standard of living that exists for people now. And, you know, people have declining standards of living in the West just for pure like economic reasons that have nothing to do with like the material capacity of the society. So, I mean, you know, there, again, this is why like, just imagine this being coupled with um, being coupled with massive unemployment from uh, from increasing automation of the economy and production. Like just like those two together is just like a terrifying combination. This is yeah. why, like, absolutely intractable international is important now than ever, and this is precisely why we have to continue to denounce like bernie sanders like watered down you know economic nationalism and why we have to be you know this is like this is why like, internationalism is so hyper important and something that we have to emphasize and stress uh unconditionally are you saying that open borders is not a right-wing idea <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if the Koch brothers are responsible for it, but if they were, I would offer them critical support. <laughs> I mean, Karl Marx did say that uh, free trade was more pro- aggressive than uh, protectionism. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, it's not all doom and gloom in the world today. Uh, and and it's one thing that I think, uh, nice little bright spot, a little bitter ray of sunshine amidst the uh, hellscape that we live within. Uh, Milo Yiannopoulos's book uh, was released in England, and it apparently sold 152 copies. So, uh, I think it's. I think. I think maybe this dude might finally be completely in the rearview mirror. Yeah, I mean, he's he's done for. I think after the pedophilia thing, I think that he's just lost so much respect from. Some, there, there still are the hardline Milo fans, and. I do see them on online forums defending him, but it's he's done for. He's not going to be, you know, the the leading figure of the right like he wants to be. I mean, these guys are expendable. It was the same thing with O'Reilly, where it was like, you know, Fox News basically realized that they could just get some other like old white guy to do the same thing for less money. Same thing with you know Milo. He's expensive. There's nothing brilliant or exceptional in his analysis that couldn't be done by some other moron. So you know, I'm sure we'll get more of his ilk. But for now, I think we can 
partake of a little bit of schadenfreude and appreciate that, uh, you know, appreciate his failure. Well, I was going to say, the thing about Milo, though, is that he was gay, and so he was able to use that to get away from, to get away with a lot of the shit he was saying. He was, you know, he was able to kind of, you know, shit on the degeneracy of, you know, you know, this um, gender bending culture, but he was able to, you know, but at the same time, he's like, oh, well, I'm gay, so, you know, it's okay for me to say this. And right, I yeah, mean, he- I'm not- They'll be able to find like another gay dude who will say, you know, this kind of shit. So it's it's not like Milo's their only hope, but I don't know. Yeah, it's he was, nice he to was, see him go down. Yeah. Don't fuck with Mormons. The Mormons right, took him down. Oh, did they? Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, wait, wasn't it like Glenn Beck's people that um brought him down? Who yeah. found the clips of him talking about pedophilia? The, the left, with all of its moral outrage, couldn't do dick against Milo, no pun intended. But the Mormons, they got a network. I'm telling you, we can learn a lot from religion. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I, I like that. I like that it was Glenn Beck too, because he's kind of a, like he's kind of washed up a little bit. It's like, yeah, you thought you thought you buried Glenn Beck. I don't think so. Glenn Beck still makes the kings around here. Glenn Beck still calls the shots. <laughs> this guy, I took that guy down. 